Ah, yes, the rich man's world, the world of the 1%. So often today, that's a world not of creating awesome companies or great innovation, but simply of moving money from place to place, of convincing rich people that they can get even richer. This is the world of high-stakes hedge funds, a place where some are making a million dollars an hour with not all that much effort. We're going to explore that world today with my guest, Les Leopold. Les Leopold is the executive director of the Labor Institute and Public Health Institute in New York. He writes for the progressive website, Alternet. He's also the author of the previous book, The Looting of America. And it is my pleasure to welcome Les Leopold to the program today to talk about his newest work, How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour, Why Hedge Funds Get Away with Siphoning Off America's Wealth. Les Leopold, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Why should we care that there are people involved in these hedge funds that are making huge sums of money? I mean, is is there a jealousy factor, or is there some larger issue that really should concern us? I think there's a larger issue. I, I think as Americans, we're used to people making a lot of money, you know, glamour, athletes, sport, you know, movie stars, sports stars. You know, we're used to it. Uh, but... Something's going on here that's far different because I don't believe uh, it's a legitimate exchange of value. Okay, you listen to a concert by uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, you pay your money, you get entertainment in return. You understand what's happening. It's a, it's a free market exchange that has value uh, to both sides. I don't think that's what's going on in the hedge fund business or at the large banks, for that matter. I think I think what you're seeing is uh, uh, nothing short of a colossal ripoff. And guess who's paying? <laughs> we are. All the rest of us are uh, uh, seeing our money uh, kind of get vacuumed up into the uh, into this hedge fund game. It doesn't look like that uh, when you just see it on the surface, but when you probe down and see what's going on, you'll find that uh, there's an enormous amount of cheating going on, which affects us all. Talk about the ways in which it is, as you say, our money. And, and to do that, let's move back a little bit and explain what hedge funds are. Okay. Uh, by the way, it has nothing to do with the garden supply wholesale business. <laughs> nothing to do. It's, it, it's uh, basically an investment fund for the wealthy, uh, and large institutions are getting into the act as well. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be for sophisticated investors, uh, 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 people with at least a million dollars of uh, net worth, otherwise you're not uh, supposed to be in. And, and then the money is taken and invested. Uh, and theoretically, these are very smart uh, investors, and they get you a good rate of return. Uh, uh, so that, that's, that's basically what a hedge fund is. And they're not limited. They can do anything. They can go anywhere in the world. They can invest their uh, money. They can go long, short, you know, uh, play with derivatives. They can do all kinds of things that a normal mutual fund uh, would be limited uh, uh, from doing uh, uh, for you. Uh, so in, in what way is it our money? Uh, let, let me give you a, a simple it's actually it's not that simple an example, but it's, it, it's a telling example. Some hedge funds are engaged in, in something called high-frequency trading, uh, which has been in the news lately. But uh, what it is is they, they, they set up their computers uh, right next to the stock exchange, so they get the, they get the feeds, these supercomputers get the feeds uh, uh, milliseconds or fractions of a second before it, it goes out into the rest of the world. And in that, in the world of uh, milliseconds, even nanoseconds, uh, they are able to use that information and make automated bets. There's 120 billion dollars wrapped up in this industry. They make between five and 20 billion dollars a year 
50% of all the stock market uh, uh, volume that's going on, at least 50%, some say it's up to 80%, uh, are from high-frequency traders. And they, they, uh, they buy and sell you know, uh, uh, tens of thousands of shares in a minute. And here's, what, here's how it comes from the rest of it. You have money in a pension fund. You have money in a mutual fund. You're, you're investing with your 401K. The high-frequency traders are able to see what you're going to do before you do it, before the, the trade actually goes through, uh, let's say, uh, because you're working at, at normal speed. They buy uh, the stock before you do sell it back to you for a few pennies more, and they do this you know, tens of thousands of times every second, and that 5 to $20 billion a year comes out of the mutual funds and the pension funds and the 401ks. It's just, coming, it's just flowing from them to you. Uh, one guy uh, was interviewed and, uh, uh, that I quote in the book, and he said he'd been uh, right through the crash and beyond. For five years, he had been uh, doing this. He hadn't had a losing day in five years. The longest uh, he ever kept a stock, the longest, was two seconds. We should point so, out. We, we should point out, however, that all of this is perfectly legal. And in fact, you know, we're installing higher capacity fiber optic cables across the Atlantic to make this even more possible. Right. You got to ask yourself. It, 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 it's legal. It could easily be discouraged. Easily, in a nanosecond, it could be discouraged through a financial transaction tax. If they had to pay a small sales tax on each and every one of these trades, it would, uh, instead of this being a hidden tax that went to them, it would be a uh, revenue stream that could go to the uh, our country. Matter of fact, I estimated uh, that the revenue stream would be so robust that you could send, uh, you could eliminate the entire student debt crisis. Everybody from here on in that went to college at a public college or university or community college could go tuition free. That's how much money would be generated by sales tax on this kind of uh, uh, useless trading. See, the point is, uh, how does that high-frequency trading at all benefit the American economy? Where's the value in it? If you're extra- you know, when you extract money from everybody else, uh, you're supposed to be, you know, if you're getting that money, there's supposed to be an economic exchange. That's the way the markets are supposed to work. You're supposed to be value for value. I don't see the value uh, that they're producing. Oh, they come up with all kinds of arguments that are absolutely ridiculous. But uh, if you see it, tell me. I mean, the, the, the principal argument, without getting into the nuances of it, of course, is that wealth creation has a, a broader positive effect on the economy. Where's the create? I, I agree. I agree. But where is the, it, you said, use the word creation, which was the right word to use. Uh, what's being created? <laughs> if you're, t- if I'm taking, look, the eco- economists have a, a term for this. For example, if you have a monopoly, you get a monopoly rent. It's called a rent. It's just another word for ripoff. It's like I'm sticking my hand into your pocket. If I have a monopoly over gasoline, for example, then I set the price wherever I want to, uh, kind of the way OPEC does, and uh, they extract the rent uh, from uh, from the rest of us. Uh, that's not creating. That's not. Uh, uh, creating new wealth. That's uh, just taking somebody else's wealth without producing anything new in return. I think that's the issue that, we, that I'm facing with. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, uh, it's perfectly legal. 
if this was the only problem I was writing about, this would be, you know, you'd say, well, it's nice arcane subject matter here. Uh, but what in fact is going on that, uh, a large number of hedge funds, I, I can't tell you if it's a majority or not, actually go about their business by breaking the law. Uh, and, uh, uh, they make their enormous returns from cheating. Now, uh, it's hard to put a number on what percentage of hedge funds actually do that. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by cheating. You know Jim Cramer from uh, uh, Mad Money? Of course. Of course, right? <laughs> now, uh, uh, Jim ran a hedge fund for 10 years uh, before he had his own show on TV, but he was a TV commentator during that time as well because, hey, wouldn't you like a guy from inside telling you what's going on? Well, uh, here's what he, he, he finally, 10 years afterwards, conveniently after the statute of limitations were up, he, he confessed about what he was doing. Uh, he would go, he would talk to his comrades, his journal, fellow journalists on, uh, on, the, on the networks that he was on, he would give them certain tips, uh, tips that they uh, would use him as a source, and there was no way for them to really verify it was a second source. Uh, and, you know, he was very smart, and he figured out how to do that, and they would be lies. They would be uh, lies that would move the market in a certain way that would benefit his hedge fund. Uh, so he would tell a little tip about Apple that they couldn't verify. That would move the stock market a certain way, or at that point, uh, uh, RIM was the big one. BlackBerry was the one he was trying to uh, put out false rumors about. And that's called rumor mongering. It's against the law. And he did it. And uh, uh, he did it not once, but he did it again and again. And he said in an interview where he confessed all this stuff, he said that if you're not willing to do these things, you shouldn't be in the game. So there's something about the game that he's saying is this is the way it's played. You cheat. And he, he says, I'll never, you know, they could never catch me. Uh, and I, he did it all the time. Now, it, uh, it's not just history. There's, in today's uh, New York Times, there is a uh, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin reports on a survey that has just recently been, been done of Wall Street players, both inside of banks and hedge funds. Basically, a hedge fund inside the inside a bank is called a proprietary trading desk. Uh, but you know they basically do the same thing. Uh, uh, but you can make more money on the outside. And, and the, the survey showed that uh, uh, 28% of the people who were surveyed uh, said that if they could make 10 million dollars, they would. Uh, uh, and, and thought they could get away with it, they would engage in insider trading, which is, you know, betting on uh, uh, non-public information in violation of the law. But what's even more amazing is those with 10 years or younger, experience, 10 years or less experience, 38% of them said that they would do that. Uh, so, it, you know, it, the desire to cheat is kind of built into the sinews of, of the way uh, this high, the way we've allowed high finance uh, uh, to mushroom. And by the way, this is a relatively recent phenomena because until the, between the stock market crash in 1929 all the way to the mid-1970s, this Wall Street was a very uh, sleepy place to work. The average wage in Wall Street, uh, given your experience and education was is the same as in the non-financial sector. Of course, now it's uh, two, three, four, five, ten times more than the uh, non-financial sector. Uh, but that's because we deregulated it and we allowed these large institutions grow and we let these uh, lightly regulated hedge funds mushroom out. And we set up a system that is uh, uh, based in large part now 
on cheating. And the, the way I put this book together, sort of chapter after chapter, gives you another insight into a different kind of uh, 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 cheating that's going on. And, of course, every time there has been an attempt to regulate any part of this or to ameliorate any part of these methods that you've been talking about, some other method, some other way, some other formula comes along on the other side to that, that Wall Street is able to adapt. Yes, that's an excellent point. And uh, I'm afraid it's gotten me much more radical over the last couple of years as I was working on the book. Uh, even more radical than I was when I was writing Looting of America. I now think that the institutional structures uh, are impossible to regulate, that they're, they're fundamentally corrupt. Uh, I've, been, I've been following the large bank scandals that have been going on, from the London whale to the car, loan sharking to the, uh, the, uh, the money laundering for drug cartels where HSBC in Mexico actually built a teller's window that was the exact size of a suitcase so the suitcase of cash could be slid, be slid under the teller's window. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You know, the uh, the uh, foreclosing on military veterans uh, illegally when they when they weren't around. I mean, this is bad stuff. So, and I think it's a, I think it's a I, I compare what's going on there to the Bank of North Dakota. I, I don't know if you've been following that bank at bit, all. Yeah. It's, a, it's a public bank uh, owned by the state of North Dakota. It's a relic from the uh, populist era of 1919. It was uh, first founded. It went through the entire financial crash. Uh, unscathed, uh, it invests in the state. Uh, the uh, uh, the top salary, uh, the average salary of the top five officers is $115,000. You can't even get a chauffeur or a cook for a, a hedge fund uh, mogul for that amount of money. Uh, and this is what the bank officers get. So, uh, you know, the, the top, the president owns $200,000. So I'm sure he's living a good life in North Dakota, but they actually uh, are a bank. In other words, they're a wholesale bank. They support 80 community banks uh, uh, in, in the state. They do things like for every $100,000 that they loan out, they uh, demand that one permanent job is created in the state of North Dakota. I mean, how novel. Imagine trying to invest for your own people and actually uh, – they're not getting any uh, incentive bonuses. They don't get any, you know, there's no, they don't engage in that kind of tra uh, proprietary trading to, to kind of make the quick buck. There's no insider trading there. There's, there's not, none of the scams around derivatives, none of that. Isn't that we can have 50 state banks. That's what we need. Isn't that an example, though, in some respects, of, of the market doing its job, that, that things like this bank in North Dakota can evolve and exist and do the good work that you're talking about? And at the same time, you know, an SAC capital can exist and, and do its work. <laughs> it's a great point, except uh, uh, the people who set up the Bank of North Dakota set it up because the market was killing the farmers during the populist era in the Northwest. The, the same rapacious banks from back east were squeezing the heck out of the farmers, so they set up their own bank. Now, SAC capital, I think, is a, a very interesting case because uh, – they, before, you know, they were praised as being this terrific company because they made for 20 years in a row, 20 in a row, a 30% return. Do you think somebody might have uh, thought, wow, how the heck did they do that? That means if you gave them $10,000 20 years ago, it would be worth $1.4 today. But why, that's not, to have a, uh, 
cancer growing on your economy is not is not the sign of a healthy market. Uh, uh, the point is to do something about that. So that uh, it, it, it's not just that these large large hedge funds and banks exist and they're only doing harm to each other. They took down the economy. I mean, if you look carefully at what brought down uh, 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 what puffed up the housing bubble and brought it down, it was the same kind of uh, designing products. Uh, one of the big scams that I write about was uh, this business of designing uh, f- uh, financial securities so that they would fail and you could bet against them. Where else in capitalism are you allowed to do that? I can't sell you a house designed to explode in six months so I can collect the insurance on it. That's, that, that's not free market economy. That's something else. Uh, it's, it's, it, we've allowed people to make enormous sums of money by setting up uh, uh, games that have no value and have tremendous harm. And then when the thing explodes, the American people have to bail them out. Uh, not necessarily individually, but collectively they had to bail them out. All those hedge funds would have gone under without the bailout. All the large banks, including the praised Goldman Sachs, would have gone under if it weren't for our bailouts. Uh, because that's how far out on a limb they had gone uh, to make their enormous uh, sums of money. There's got to be a better way. There just has to be a better way. You can't tell me that we have to live with this uh, uh, until, until we perish. Uh, there's got to be a better way. And yet here we are four years out, roughly four years out from, from the crash that you're talking about. And And I would argue that there is very little outrage out there about any of this and that many of the same things that, that created the environment and created the processes that that had the, the effect that it did on the economy are back in business full swing. Well, you make an excellent point, and boy, do I feel it. Uh, I can tell there's a certain kind of exhaustion going on with the American people, and it's not because they don't care. People can't stand Wall Street. And they feel that it was an enormous, uh, uh, enormous injustice has been done. Uh, I, I think that runs really deep in the American culture. The problem is they don't see how to do anything about it. Uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street came and went. Uh, that was a magic moment that maybe could, could have been built into something else, but it didn't happen. You had the election of uh, Obama and, and all the hope that went with that. And now we're seeing, you know, the, the revolving door from Wall Street to Washington and back uh, is very disappointing. So what can you do about it? It's like you can't fight. It used to be you can't fight City Hall. Now you can't fight Wall Street. And so people have gotten exhausted. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I get a chance to do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, talking and uh, mingling with people all over the place. And I can sense that there, there is a, uh, a level of frustration but also like fatalism said again, we just can't do anything. Might as well just get back to doing what we can to survive, which is a shame. But I think it's late in there, and I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that there will be another moment uh, uh, where it can gel again and we can get some serious uh, uh, reforms. There are 20 states considering setting up public banks. Oh, I learned something very interesting, Jeff, that I didn't know before. You know, when you pay your – you're in California, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You pay your taxes. Where does it go? You pay your state uh, sales tax or income taxes or fees for driver's license. Where's the money go? It's going to Sacramento here. Right. You. That's what I thought. I thought it went to Trenton. I'm in New Jersey. Right. That's not where it goes. It goes into a branch of a Wall Street bank, except in North Dakota. Every. That's how North Dakota gets its money, uh, the Bank of North Dakota, because all the fees go into that into that bank. And, but in every in the other 49 states. 
we think we're giving it to Sacramento or Albany or whatever. It's going into a Wall Street uh, branch of a Wall Street bank to do management services for the state. That's a trillion dollars a year that we're giving to Wall Street, except in North Dakota, where the money goes uh, into into the uh, uh, state bank. By the way, uh, California would generate an additional an additional three billion dollars a year in revenue if they had a public bank. Three billion for the taxpayers of, of uh, California, but instead, we're, you know, it's being uh, siphoned into Wall Street Bank. So there is stuff going on uh, in, in sort of this kind of these twenty states are, you know, uh, wrestling with uh, it, uh, about how to set up a state bank. And of course, the Wall Street folks are all over it trying to stop it. Uh, so, but it's a quieter battle. And uh, you know, the goal of writing books like this is to kind of like uh, increase. Uh, uh, Financial literacy, because uh, I because I wasn't financially literate. I had to learn this stuff on my own. I'm trying to share it with people, and hopefully, it will uh, uh, help build uh, some of the outrage that we're going to need to do something about it. I want to talk about that because one of the things we see here in California certainly is a lot of banks that get set up. If they was the kind of of outrage or the kind of exhaustion that you're talking about, where people were fed up with Wall Street, were looking for alternatives, alternative places to put their money, etc. Wouldn't we see a lot of other banks coming along, a lot of other institutions coming along to take advantage of that sentiment, to take advantage of that feeling? And in fact, we don't see that. Well, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting observation. And uh, uh, I think the kind of outrage... You know, they're, 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 the schemes like, you know, uh, sort of put your money, get, get your money away from the, from the bad guys and put it someplace else. The problem with that is it always ends up with the bad guys again. Because the, uh, it, it's very hard for these little banks to, uh, to survive. Uh, uh, in effect, right now we are subsidizing large banks. Uh, this estimate is not something that it came from the, you know, I think the Federal Reserve in Dallas, because everybody knows we can't let them fail. They've gotten bigger, in fact, since the, since the, since we bailed them out, because there are fewer of them. Uh, the 19 systemically important banks, we're going to bail them out, or we're going to take depositors' money to bail them out. Uh, as a result, they get a, they get the equivalent of a uh, subsidy of a couple hundred billion dollars a year because they can get their capital costs are lower than everybody else's because the security is built in. You give your money to Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know that uh, uh, it's going to be relatively safe compared to every place else. The the place to do this, though, is not by setting up a for-profit private bank. I don't think that's going to work. Uh, I think the place to do it is setting up uh, public banks that work for the, uh, for, you know, for the people of the state. One of the things that we did in trying to solve the financial crisis and solve the banking process is that we made the big banks bigger because of all the focus on closing up the small banks. W- what happened is that we made the large banks larger. Absolutely. We, we uh, uh, not only made them, we bailed them out, first of all, well, when, they, when they were insolvent, we bailed them out. Because everyone's so scared that it would, you know, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. But basically, we bailed them out because the people in Washington were the former bankers on Wall Street. And it was a very easy, you know, for them, they see the world through the lens of Wall Street. Like, oh, we can't let these institutions go down. Uh, and you're right. They, they, uh, that, it wasn't just smaller banks that were shut down. Other big ones, you know, when uh, 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 were merged into uh, uh, 
uh, Wachovia, you know, were merged into Bank of America. That kind of stuff was going on. Uh, also subsidized by the uh, federal, uh, by, by American taxpayer. So we kind of created uh, the policy people in Washington created bigger banks, which they thought would be more stable and more easily regulated. Ha! Except they can't regulate them because they're so strong. Uh, between the banks and the hedge funds, you can't. You, almost no regulation is going to take place. But in many so, ways, in many ways, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. That, that this idea of the big getting bigger and and the power of large companies is happening in every aspect of our society. It's not just banking. It's as true for the auto industry as it is for the steel industry as it is for areas of technology. That in fact we we are we live in this global environment in which the ability to be big, the ability to have global tentacles, is critical in order to do business today. That's another reality we have to live with. Well, I, I, I challenge that reality uh, uh, in the following way, uh, several ways. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, General Motors is not bigger than it was 30 years ago. Uh, the American auto industry is not the size that it was 30 years ago, nor is uh, the steel industry. In fact, they're smaller. Uh, Walmart is bigger, uh, but uh, these other ones are actually smaller. Second, uh, when they, if something bad happens to them, they don't take down the American economy. Uh, uh, Wall Street's a different, banking is a different animal. Banking is the uh, uh, blood system for the entire economy. When it has a heart attack, it freezes up the whole economy. In six months, uh, that, that heart attack cre- uh, killed 8 million jobs. 8 million people lost their jobs due to no fault whatsoever of their own. Uh, it's not the same if, when General Motors has a problem or if a steel industry goes down. And yet, we've and yet, and yet we have, we bailed out General Motors. We bailed out Chrysler. We, we were well, concerned. this time we had to bail them out. Right. We were sure. concerned about the failure of the auto industry. And yeah, while those, there, and while there, those were, companies, there were jobs reasons for doing it. It wasn't going to take down the American economy. We, uh, you know, uh, uh, how many steel, look how many steel industries have gone down. Oh my God, I, I, I work closely with the United Steelworkers. That one after the other after the other has gone down. Hasn't taken down the economy. It's been bad, I, I would say, uh, long-term trend. And then I look at, okay, so flip it all around, and now look at Germany. Uh, Germany has uh, 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 a very competitive international uh, companies, but they don't, they're not, they don't have to be giant size. But my 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 focus here, though, but Deutsche Bank is, and it's a problem. My my uh, uh, my my focus here, though, is to say uh, we could have a different discussion about how big institutions have gotten in general, whether they have uh, uh, too much control over markets that they're in. In other words, whether the markets are now you know being uh, uh, basically monopolized and, and and prices are not where they should be. That's a, a discuss one discussion. There's another discussion though about the centrality of finance to any modern economy and whether we're going to allow uh, 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 a monopoly based well oligopoly to form and have both political as well as economic power. Uh, it's very very dangerous uh, and. Uh, uh, and I, I think I think we have to address that as as a both an economic and a political question. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to break them up, and, and maybe, maybe they can break up investments. From that would be wonderful if they get a new kind of glass steagle, terrific. But I don't I don't think even that would solve the problem. The only thing that would ultimately solve it would be a competitive public banking system uh, that that the Federal Reserve actually served. That its primary purpose was to serve 50 state banks as opposed to serving Wall Street. Uh, and I don't buy it 
that it's good for the American economy for uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase to be a global enterprise. Uh, I, I don't buy that at all. I, what I, it, 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 it's been very uh, good for moving jobs from here to someplace else, but I don't see them reinvesting in America the way the Bank of North Dakota does. But it is a global economy, and, and, and the way in which money and capital flows around the world is something that has been growing really since the early 70s. I mean, really, you, you have since to... We start, since we allowed it to happen. You have to go back, <laughs> yeah, to, you have to, go back to Walter Riston and Citibank to, to really see the beginnings of this, the roots of, of global banking, global capitalism in that regard. Well said. Actually, uh, uh, next book I may be working on, I want to look at those at that moment because I think the, de- the decision to deregulate Wall Street and the decisions that led to rapid globalization, I'm not talking about uh, uh, that we shouldn't have a global economy, but the speed at which we allow capital to flow and that we allow capital to flow right now, we're learning is extremely dangerous. I mean, uh, it's extremely dangerous. It's very hard. Uh, you know, there was, there was only one financial crisis between uh, the end of World War II and the 1970s uh, before this rapid uh, deregulation and globalization took place. And that was, I think, uh, Brazil in 64. After that, there were 180. And, and everybody said, well, we're just going to manage these crises. And then it hit you know, the United States and Europe. And now uh, look how hard it is for Europe to, 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 ma- to manage itself, given, you're right, there is this massive global economy. But, but there's a difference between the finance you need to run a global economy and the finance you need to scam it. To milk it, to take, to create disruptions so that you can, uh, uh, create runs on banks, runs on, on, on sovereign countries, uh, which is what's a lot of what was, uh, what was and is going on in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, these hedge fund raids, you, you, please, you have to, you, you have to explain to me how that is, has any positive economic value. And that's the downside of deregulated global capital. And I think, I think, the idea of that you can let finance be totally deregulated globally is something we will look back on a hundred years and say, how the heck could you have been so stupid to let that happen? That's what I would, I think people are going to say about us hundred years from now. The other side is that the genie is out of the proverbial bottle and uh, we're not going to get it back in either here or anywhere else on the globe for that matter. I, I wonder because you know, you're absolutely right. The genie's out of the bottle, but the bottle may be breaking I mean, uh, so something new will have to be constructed. Uh, I don't know what it is, but, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, the largest banks in the world now are public, uh, in Brazil, in Japan, in China. Uh, you know, the, 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 the notion of just letting this all, you know, that the, the, the market is it's too late, we can't do anything about it, it, by the way, that's just the flip side of the fatalism that I was talk- we were both talking about before. Uh, and and uh, there's got, it, it's a human creation. It's not an act of God. Uh, and uh, thoughtful people want to, uh, uh, can do something about it, provided that they have uh, uh, you know, the backing of the will of the people. And right now, that backing is not entirely expressed. Uh, look, we have dysfunctional political institutions. Uh, we have people who are kind of given up on everything, uh, and it, it's not a good situation. Uh, but hopefully, you know, I was inspired by what the beginnings of what I saw with Occupy Wall Street. I'm very sorry that uh, uh, it, it, it uh, didn't grow into something uh, 
uh, more stable nationally, some kind of uh, uh, movement institution. But we need something. And I, I think, uh, you know, if you brought together uh, there, there are a bunch of thoughtful economists, if you brought them together, they could discuss some of the ways in which you could, uh, you know, raise capital requirements on, on large institutions, slow down the rapid, uh, uh, rapid gaming of markets, uh, use a financial transaction tax, which 11 countries in Europe are about to institutionalize, uh, but, uh, we refuse to kind of put some modicum of, uh, uh, well, it's control, uh, controlling the pace and the speed and the disruptions caused by the flow of capital back and forth. You know, James Tobin, the Nobel laureate, mm-hmm. uh, the fi- he was the first one to really start talking about financial transaction tax, tax. He was writing in the early 70s. He saw all this coming. He said, my God, you know, uh, countries need the ability to maintain high levels of em- uh, employment. And capital will always run when countries try to maintain high levels of employment. So, and capital can run faster than policymakers can operate. So what he, his argument was, you have to put sand into the wheels of finance. You have to slow it down. And his idea was this financial transaction tax. You've got to find a way to slow it down so that, uh, so that you know, the genie's out of the bottle. But uh, uh, the financial transaction tax is definitely uh, a policy tool that we could use. The answer, perhaps, is what Bill Clinton used to say about affirmative action, that we needed to mend it, not end it. And that may be uh, how we have to deal with this. Les Leopold, his book is How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour, Why Hedge Funds Get Away with Siphoning Off America's Wealth. Les, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. I I really appreciate the uh, thoughtful questions that you posed. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.